Hey guys, okay, so you're going to realize this is kind of a funny intro to the show. So me and Michael Serbrook, who's my guest here, we're going to be discussing uh, the kind of roles of a GM and being a good GM. But we started talking, even in the setup to starting the podcast, and it just started flowing naturally, the discussions and things like that, so much so that I just hit the record button so I didn't lose any good content. So there's no traditional kind of setup and intro in this. So you're going to pick up the conversation with us talking about uh, Critical Role and uh, the cast member's experience going into Critical Role. And uh, hope you enjoy this episode. So I think who had done any gaming were Matt, who had done a lot of it. Uh, I think Orion had some familiarity with it. Taliesin, because uh, but he had done like vampire and stuff. And I think mm-hmm. Liam. Uh, yeah, Liam was, was the one with the most because he was the guy who played back in like you know middle school, high school, back in the I think the early mid eighties. Yeah, because uh, yeah, they're all. I think the oldest of them is still ten years younger than me. Uh, yeah, because I think uh, Sam and, and Liam are in their early 40s uh and you know matt had played just an absolute ton so that's why they asked him to be gm so you had a bunch of people who were very new to gaming and on one hand they've got the uh the storytelling background with being voice actors theater actors stage actors well i just repeated myself uh voice actors stage film and tv yeah, they've all got that run. Um, and there is the acting classes and everything else that they've done and the work in production. So I think, you know, they understand building a character uh, often to a greater depth than a lot of other people who are just starting out uh, in gaming. So, uh, you know, the original, the original characters, though, were, uh, I think they were, they also, I think, grew uh, as they were played. They, they may have started out very basic, but I remember even Travis saying they sit down for the very first session and his uh, girlfriend, soon to be fiance wife, Laura Bailey, is all of a sudden this posh English woman, and he has no idea where this came from and how to deal with it. Uh, mm-hmm. So in some cases, the improv training and everything they had, they just, boom, I'm going to do this. Um, and uh, and uh, they you know grew those characters, and they played. And they and admittedly, they originally called themselves the shits, and they realized when they went on audio or went on the podcast, they couldn't do that. So they became Vox Machina, which is sort of a meta gameplay on, uh, you know, voice of the people. We're, we're, we're broadcasting live and so on. Um, yeah, or voice box or voice machine, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah Vox Populi is voice of the people. Things you learn playing Bioshock Infinite. Uh, <laughs> um, but I guess, the way to, I guess the way I look at it is, is that for the most part, you had characters trying to do the right thing or trying to be good to really boil it down i mean uh um pike especially uh percy actually percy was not uh, uh has stated percy looked like a good person but was actually kind of awful uh molly mock yeah, Ta- kind of awful has exactly an interesting thing in that because i think talison like you mentioned did vampire and a couple other game systems and every time i've watched talison play and I, I hope you don't mind if i make this part of the part of the content like a tag on no, the no, end no, because sure. uh 
from all the behind, but between the sheets and interviews I've seen with Talison, he's up there with Matt at having played a lot of games, maybe not necessarily D&D, but, you know, Vampire mm-hmm. and other systems. And he's somebody who's at the point where he's kind of done it all, seen it all. So I think the fact that he went to the first campaign with a character that was neutral, if not possibly evil, and what he does now in the newer campaigns to where he wants to play radical and weird and out there different types of characters comes from just kind of a general, I don't want to say malaise, but like, okay, give me something new, give me something I haven't seen before. I think whereas the other players, like you mentioned a second ago, everybody being so new or not having an idea what to do, they thought, oh, we're supposed to play the good guys because that's what you do, right? You play the good guys. Well, here's the interesting Uh, thing, though. Percy's not his original character. Oh, you're right. He did do. He, he had did, a paladin. I, I think, he had a dragonborn yes, paladin. So he. Yes. You know, but but I but what what I think happened though is that the joy because you know I, I I recall Sam breaking down in tears and like thanking Liam for bringing him to the game because it was just an amazing experience and I think the joy at playing and the idea that they were now going to play in the same setting. And I can actually draw this to analogy, and this is actually something you should probably, you can edit out what I'm saying now, but this is perfectly ties into what you're talking about. And I have a perfect analogy in something that happened in in, in some gaming I was involved in. But I think with the second game, everybody was like, oh, we can really push the boundaries. And so they really decided to push the boundaries. You get a goblin, you get, uh, you know, you get... um, Furbog. Uh, well, yeah, and I, I think with the Furbog, it may have been also a case of, hey, Matt, you know, what what can I replace it with? What's the environment like? Well, we've got this. Oh, that'll be interesting. Because Catechus is definitely, Clay is definitely more good than the rest of the party, much like Monty He's prob- probably the most straightforward character I think Taliesin has played because he yeah. does like his, like, shifty, seedy, like, ulterior motive to kinds. And then here's right. Caduceus Clay, who's just a straight lace, you know, sort of the dude. Uh, cleric, you know what I mean? And naive, but uh, yeah, and the thing that I've noticed too is that, and this is something I see sometimes where uh, everybody, and, and obviously they all did this in a vacuum, but there is a, uh, and and I don't, uh, there is a sometimes a one-upmanship of, oh, my character is more broken than your character. Uh, yeah. Because happy people, now it's been pointed out, for the most part, happy, contented, stable people don't become adventurers. You need a reason for why you are out and about in, in a D&D game or Pathfinder or most 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 D and D esque games, you need a reason why you're out and about and risking your life, um, unless the GM has really set up a good reason, uh, like say, hey, you're all paladins and knight errants, and that's actually your whole objective is to go out and and do good across the world and come back and brag of your deeds or something like that. But these guys, or they don't have a death wish. I, I, I'll say this as well. I've had characters. And I'm pretty sure you've had this, Mike, as well. Sometimes where a PC has retired a character because they've gotten to the point to where they're like, oh, well, my character's kind of done his bit. Like he's happy. Like yeah. I had a character who wanted to start his own adventuring guild and see the world. And after it's going through three continents, this is around level nine. After going through three continents and meeting with kings and queens and regents and fighting dragons he hit the point where he had enough money to start a guild and he was like well i've kind of done all the things now i just want to retire Uh and we legit we legit were like okay well everybody else levels up to 10 while you get to create a new character because you're right your guy doesn't really have a place in this world anymore he doesn't want to go you know with a death wish he just wants to start a business and he's done it uh yeah well well let me so let's uh so some interesting add-ons to all of that um so let me let me let's let's get back to critical role and what happens when you do a second campaign in the continuity of the first and how the characters may go overboard. Uh, I'll, I'll touch on that. But um, back in Maryland, I was in uh, for my friend Jeff Mueller, uh, the mighty, the jerk. Yeah, 
um, he, he was running a campaign and he was running a mashup of his own original setting, but uh, heavily drawing from uh, Rise of T-Mat and a couple other modules. He would literally just be like, oh, I like this map, this encounter, this whatever. And he would he would splice everything together uh, and and then throw an original content, you know. So uh, it was an original world, but he's like, nope, I love Thay. So Thay was across the water, and we hated that place. Um, but one of the things that happened was uh, one of the characters I remember got abandoned because they fled a, a cha- they fled a cavern, and they have no idea what happened to the character because that was the that was the GM's wife, and she 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 got too busy with work and has never come back to the game. So that one of the questions is we don't know what happened to that character. Uh, with the actual player characters, uh, let me see. We had the battle. We stopped Tiamat from showing up, but a player character. No, actually, before that, one of the players said, "Hey, my character does not want to do the plot." My character wants to go to the border and stop the goblins because their background, their motivation, their their uh, their personality says they're going to do that. That is the most important threat because you've presented us with multiple threats, uh, and and my character is going to break away. So they brought in a new character in the battle against Tiamat. That character was killed, and my character looked at the the really awful things, you know, the end justifies the means things that some of us did. And said, you know what? I'm gonna go off back to the outlands where I'm from and think about what I, my life and what I've done. Um, and in many cases, the GM, you know, not trying to force people to ride the, the railroad to the next plot. Uh, and not that he was railroading us, but you get the idea. You know, uh, was willing to let players have their characters sort of come in and out of the story and uh, have new characters come and. And he even let the paladin completely rewrite his character to be a normal fighter because the paladin had become so disillusioned. And I think that's an actual awesome thing because it makes it more organic. You don't have that forced, uh, we all have PC on our forehead, we all trust each other, we're all going to stick around for 20 levels or, you know, 200 experience points or 20 years or whatever because, you know, that's because we're all together. No, I, I think it's, I think it is nice to have, to have the ability to say, you know, oh, we're done with this. And in fact, um, when I played in Curse of Strahd, um, I, rec- I remember that, you know, about three quarters of the way through at the end when the GM said, well, you know, we're not going to pick up the game, but what do you guys do afterwards? Um, the party barbarian was like, I'm, uh, 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 uh had decided she had decided, uh, had decided the, the character was female. She was like, I'm done. I have had uh, all that tales of adventure and 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 action and everything. Yeah, now that I've seen it firsthand, I don't want it anymore. I'm going to go back to the village and I'm done. And my druid was like, "Yeah, I'm going to go back to the middle of the forest, away from as far as away from everybody as I can, because that's where that's going to be better in the long run." And and I and I think that was also pretty interesting that you know characters can say, "I've had it." You know, I. I uh, I, I have gone up against some pretty awful stuff, and it's time for somebody else to do it because you know I, uh, um, it's just I'm going to break. I mean, not everybody's Captain America who, no matter how tired and exhausted and battered he is, still stands up. Uh, but that's his character, and not everybody is that character. And with uh, the new season of Critical Role, I don't know. If, it's obviously not a competition of well, my character is more broken than your character. Uh, um, because not all of them have really awful backgrounds. Although, you know, Caleb, when his story comes out, you're like, yep, that's, that's not too good. Uh, you know, you've got mm-hmm. not, who's obviously an outcast from the goblins. You've got people with family issues. You have people 
who um, just want to get out and see the world. And, 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 and that's actually Jester. I mean, Jester's got the simplest motivation of all. I've spent the first 20 years of my life sort of cooped up in one building, and now I want to see everything. Yeah, um, Wonderlust is kind of a nice thing to have, yeah, especially in contrast to the dark and grave of uh, story backstories of the other characters. Yeah, and, and without naming names and spoiling it for those who have not fully caught up, you know, but if you think about it, you've got two outcasts from their 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 uh, their 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 origins. You have somebody with Wanderlust. You have somebody who's very closed mouth about their backgrounds, uh, and and is. Uh, uh, has had some, has is sort of a drift. Uh, you have um, somebody who is try is out. You know, had to kind of had to leave where they were. Ended up leaving where they were. I think uh, Clay is is the one that that, that we can kind of name and be like, yeah, Catechus is like, well, I got to go somewhere, but I'm with you guys, and you guys are kind of a mess. So I'm going to try to keep a, keep an eye on all of you. Um, but you have you have some kind of you know you don't have anybody who has a noble. A desire to do good, which is not required in a game, but you have a much more a moral bunch. And there's some times where I was like, man, these guys, these guys, uh, you know, if they're chaotic neutral, they're definitely playing that sort of, you know, especially Jester with doing some stunts that I actually was very uncomfortable with. Like, man, you're really being cruel. And in some cases, I think they're being cruel without. I don't know if they're knowing it or they're being cruel because they think it's funny or they think the character thinks it's funny. So they're being, but they're being cruel for the sake of cruelty. Mm. Uh, um, I think the whole real, real quick, everybody listening, we're starting in media res. There's no proper <laughs> intro to this episode. We've just been talking about critical role. Hopefully I'm going to go back and record an intro. So a lot of you guys aren't confused. Hi, it's Don. I'm here with our good friend and former guest, Michael Serbrook. Hello. We're talking about critical role and the role of a GM. And I think you're hitting on a couple of things I have on my uh, list of topics I wanted to touch on. You're hitting on a couple of things I wanted to talk about. One of which well, is, uh, oh, do, does so your, So let me just actually, the the one that really, and and, and because I don't want to, the one to see if you agree with me and see if this touches in, it's the whole bit that really, really made me uncomfortable, the whole bit with I'm going to involuntarily tattoo somebody from the other ship. And I always thought that was, do you realize what you're doing there? Now, the GM's role, bringing it back to the subject, is to let, you know, I, I always think you're, let, you know, give people, give you the rope and let you hang yourself with it, you know, and, and whether that's going to come ever, ever going to come to bite them in the, in the butt or, you know, or whatever, it may never. Um, but that whole sequence where they played pirates uh, and I thought, man, I have some characters that if my character was in that scenario would have drawn, would have drawn on the rest of the party in, in a, no, we're not doing this. Um, and you know that is something that I think a GM has to be aware of is if the players want to all be evil or be bad guys, do you force them to say no? We're going to be I want to, I want good guys, or do you let them? You know, do you let them do what they think they want to do, but the universe doesn't have to play along? Okay, so that's one of my questions here, and I was meaning to get us back to that, okay. which is um, the, the, the way these statements in this episode is going to go for those of you who are listening is I have a bunch of statements here, which are kind of bold and very easily picked apart, which I'm going to do to incite conversation back and forth. And one of them is it's the GM's job to keep the players in check and the story moving forward. Well, this is a situation where we're talking about where these guys are kind of going a little off the rails and being cruel and more sinister. and I don't know if it, you know, this is Wes not knowing behind the GM screen, whether he had a, a Matthew Mercer had a conversation with his players to be like, Hey guys, do you want this to be a sort of evil, neutral, ambiguous kind of morality game? And they said, yes. 
or if this is them just kind of fucking around and having a good old time and messing with PCs. But that's kind of going back to one of the things I was talking about. So in this situation, I think personally, and you're asking me, if you start a whole bunch of actions like that, which start either going against your alignments or going against kind of the general flow of the game, I would openly as a DM go like, all right, you understand that there are repercussions to what you're doing and to what the people are going to do. This is to the PC. There's repercussions to what you're doing, what the people are going to do to the world around you. And that if you want to play this type of character, if you want to play this type of game, okay. But as long as it doesn't A, harm everybody else's experience at the table, and B, you're ready for the very real uh, consequences of that, you can play that. Otherwise, maybe check what we were intending to do as a group here and maybe kind of get back in line. That's the way I've, I've done that because I've been in campaigns. I've actually had campaigns that fall apart because I had a split down the middle about what sort of game we wanted to play even after we established what sort of game we wanted to play. And two of the people were just like, you know what? It's too much stress. They're never going uh, along with the way I wanted to go. So that game, and unfortunately, that came, the campaign ended. But at least I gave everybody a chance to be like, hey, guys, we need to figure out what we're trying to do here. And I don't want to harm anybody else's experience. And unfortunately, just differing uh, opinions and wants happen in that scenario. So I'm, I'm with the belief that in that scenario, I think the DM or GM should you know, either check their player and uh, see, see if you know, what they're doing, if they understand what they're doing is going to have consequences. And yes, I agree. Like that's, that's again, that's a, a tattoo is still taking away ownership and um, uh, what's English here I'm looking for? autonomy thank you it takes away autonomy from someone um which is along that evil path along that manipulative path uh but if it starts getting to the point of like torture and other you know unspeakables then yeah i think you have to have a serious shift to either what you call the game or how the player is getting treated by the rest of the world and part of it is that um i have a i have a i have a, due to my research on one of my previous gaming projects i have a good understanding of a reasonably good understanding of the of pirate piracy, the golden age of piracy, and what pirates were like, and the idea that um, you know it's not Johnny Depp, it's not Pirates of the Caribbean, it's not most Hollywood, uh, it's certainly not most of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, as I said there, and um, you know sometimes I, I think about what does the NPC. You know, or what is that guy in the movie, or what are these characters that are often just killed off with no reason, or you know, to establish how bad the badass the uh, villain is, or you know, just because they're red shirt fodder for a gruesome deaths or whatever. And sometimes I think about that, and I think, you know, uh, I think if you are developing a living world and your NPC and, and your NPCs are not just cardboard standouts to be um, abused or or roughshod, run roughshod over by the player characters. Uh, you know what, what? What do they think? I mean, what, you know, uh, you know. Here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna haul you from your ship to my ship. I want you. I'm gonna give you a tattoo. Uh, and yet, there's there's some stuff going on there that, uh, you know, do you guys realize that this could be awful for him down the line? You know, you have some sort of weird pirate tattoo, uh, and we can convict you or just on that because obviously you must have been a pirate and and things. And and there is a there is a question there of how in depth do you want your world to be. And uh, how uh, reactive do you want it to be? And yeah, you can establish with the session zero, hey, we're going to do a four color supers game, which are, you know, which means I want you guys to be sort of on the up and up. Uh, I want you guys to kind of like you know understand that you're the hero, and 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 I'm not going to penalize you for you know doing heroic and maybe reckless acts because that's kind of the shtick of that style of comic game. 
Uh, on the other hand, you can say, you know, we're playing Curse of Strahd, and this is gothic horror, and this is going to be sort of a survival of you against a very ultimate evil. Uh, and if you goof off or screw around, it's going to really be painful and, uh, you know, things like that. And you may want to ask midway through the game, you know, you know, Mercer could ask or you could say, do you guys really want to play this style? Do you want me to 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 sort of, you know, change my uh, take a look at the plot threads and make them more self-centered, uh, immoral, you know, type gaming? And, and, uh, and uh, I think I think the takeaway I have with this is that communication is key, whether you have a mailing list, whether you have Facebook, whether you text or call or, or pull people aside or, or even have a you know, few minutes before the actual campaign and then you know, CR's case, the, the, the cameras roll or during their, their, their bathroom break in the middle, you know, I, I think you need to say, is this the game everybody wants to play? Because you can have half the party Half the players being like, this is awesome, and the other half being, this is not what I want to do, but it's the only game in town, so I'm kind of stuck with it. And in Critical Role, it's actually worse. I mean, it is really, it's like, uh, this is an awesome show, and there's so much, it's really cool, all the stuff that we get out of it, but what do I do if I really don't like the game? Now, you could also, you could you could do something crazy like, yep, I'm going to drop this character and bring in a new one. Uh, we can maybe, you know, you're in your case. Well, the game's going to come to an end because nobody likes how it's going. Um, you know, yeah, I never sympathize with anybody who live streams their games because having played now a multitude of games or run a multitude of games, there are times to where uh, a person needs to leave job or just doesn't fit with the table or, or all sorts of other, you know, issues. And I can't imagine having been a show producer and being like, so we're just going to lose a cast member, or we're just going to stop the campaign, or have it switch all of a sudden. Like, hey, we've had, you know, we have dot times we have to set up. We have, you know, boom mics and other production people, and you're going to run the risk of this thing falling apart because of this action. Like, that's what I always, uh, always hated about the idea of live streaming games. Once you have the outside influence of viewers and production and stuff like that, you might not have the same fun. Yeah, and and I've had arguments erupt at the gaming table, and I've had. You know, I've I've had uh, some frustrations and and such and and yeah, I mean, when Evil Beagle Games was wondering about live streaming to try to bring more attention to um, Freedom Squadron and 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 uh, Prowlers and Paragons, I remember writing a breakdown of things that you have to pay attention to, and it was like, look, guys, um, you're on camera, you have to realize you're on camera, you have to realize that you're going to have people that are going to possibly be critical or analyze what you're doing and i've you know people who i know people who be due to you know add and so on uh they paint minis because they have to do that or they're going to be walking around they may bring coloring books you know all this kind of stuff and i've had some people who just stare at their phones and i'm like okay i don't mind if you're painting because at least you're looking at me at times or you're you know whatever you're doing but you know people you can't be staring at your phone if you're live streaming because people are going to tell and be like they're completely disconnected and i saw this in dice camera action where people were very critical of one of the players who's still on the show but they're like oh we can tell that player is just surfing facebook and not really paying attention you can tell by the the way they react to and not seem to know always what's going on um, and there's 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 other issues, um, you know, like, hey, guess what? You know, you're probably going to be sitting there for two hours. So if you can't be constantly getting up, you can't be, uh, you know, uh, you can't be, uh, you know, picking at your ears, your nose or whatever. Uh, and there's a certain 
there's a lot of restrictions to this, and you got to respect people who can, for four, well, for two two-hour blocks roughly, do this and and pull it off. And and sure, you can see them make mistakes. They drop dice. They they don't. They can't find numbers. They have questions about spells and everything. But it it is it is a daunting task. And and there was a couple people. Uh, in the Evil Beagle group are like, yeah, I could not be on a, a live stream of any show because my actions or behaviors that keep me in tune with the game would not fly in a live stream. I mean, I actually had a con game where somebody just broke out in a lamp and knitting, and I and now they were they were able to focus <laughs> on the game, but I was just like, you brought a portable lamp and knitting. Okay, <laughs> it was just that's it a was hell just, of a story, though. Yeah, it was just like I okay, but they they I, I later found out it was it was it was one of the apparently they had a, a great deal of fun with the game, but it was it was for me too. I mean, this uh, this is something uh, uh, that any GM who's going to be at a convention game has to deal with. You're almost guaranteed to get people you don't know, especially in my case. I'm coming to a convention I've never been been to before, and a part of the world I've never. U.S. I've never been to before, um, so everybody at my table is going to be new, and I'm going to be new, and I don't know what to, to expect. I don't know if I'm going to have people who uh, are going to be attentive. I don't have people who are going to stare at their phones. I don't have people who are going to be uh, arguing with me over everything. I don't know if I'm going to have people who are going to hang on every word. Or, you know, and I, I don't know, and this is the risk. I've never had a convention game be like, I'm going to stop because you guys are all jerks. Um, I have, however... I was in a convention game where I really struggled to stay awake and I know that there's some people and I actually got out of one convention game because I did have a headache and I just was bored and could not take two more hours or three more hours of the game. And I, it was Gen Con. I went to my room and actually slept, which was a good thing. But I've had friends also like, please text me so I can get out of here. Um, Cause you know, it's, it's always, uh, it's always a, uh, a, a gamble as to what you're going to get in any, any game, even with people you know, uh, something bad may happen in the course of a session, and all of a sudden, it may be like, well, maybe we'll call it early and you know try better next time or whatever. So, so I've I've got a couple of statements here that can tie in multiple um, things we've said so far. One of which is um, the game master or dungeon master, uh, depending on your system, is kind of like the manager at a job. You have to oversee and keep everybody on task and make sure everybody's doing their business. And that kind of ties in a, a little bit to the other thing about here about the it's the GM's role to re, uh, to read the room and make sure everybody's happy. It, it, you know, especially at con games, which I've run a couple of con games now, one of the hardest things to do is to figure out uh, uh, the temperature of a person within a matter of seconds. Because, you know, immediately, hi, hi, what's your name? What's your character's name? Okay, cool, we're going to begin that's pretty much all the intro you get. Uh, so you're trying to either read their body language or their face or their inflections. But whenever somebody pulls out a phone, I can't tell if that's, oh, this guy's boring as hell. I'm not interested in this game. Somebody get me out of here. Or, oh, I need to check when my next panel is. And I, I'm actually super invested. I just need to do this real quick. So there's 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 kind of the difficulty of that. And it, it makes a GM's job kind of hard to do that, especially when you're running for uh, people you don't know. Yes. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, I, I think the, the the other one here about being being a manager is I think a part of a GM's job, uh, as far as I've known it, is is you're also the time manager. You're also the one keeping everybody honest. You, you're the one kind of responsible for making sure, hey, everybody's good for Sunday, right? I haven't heard a text from you, man. Are you showing up? You know, if we lose, you know, two three people, we can't play. So like you you kind of 
do have an advisory supervisory role as a game master, I think. Yeah, um, I know that uh, we don't use mailing lists out here in Colorado, and we used a bunch back in Maryland. But out here now, what happens is we use Facebook. So I realize that I need to probably uh, at least a week in advance, so sometime before next Tuesday uh, or around next Tuesday, I need to post the next event. I, now there's a Facebook group for the game I'm running, and I need to post an event and say, this is this is what we're doing, this is the time. And when we had a mailing list, actually, because the games were at my house a couple of days in advance, I wasn't the GM, but I would still do that. And I would say, uh, I would because I was the host. I would say, you know, the game is at this time. Please arrive early. Uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna try to do this and other elements. But I do think the game master, uh, and I think there's a give and take though. I for uh, I know that a technique that works for me that I learned from Ross Watson, uh, and this this is really uh, came to light when I ran a game at a at a meadery at the Baltimore Charm City Meadworks in Baltimore. Uh, I had six players. One was familiar with fifth edition. One had played fourth edition, and four had never played, uh, uh, and they never played like anything. And I was like, okay, well, I tell you what, guys, go over to the table, grab the first level characters for the D and D Adventures Guild, and I'm gonna fire up uh, Death House from um, Curse of Strahd just to give you an idea of how mechanics work and so on. Um, and what happened there was that I would pretty regularly go around the table and say, well, give me, what are you doing? What are you doing? Give me an action. Give me a scene. And I, I, I saw a couple of the brand, brand new players get this like look in their face, like, wait, I get to tell you. Uh, and that kept them interested because I tried to go around the table a lot so that nobody sat and was ignored. Um, cause I've seen the horror stories of, of, uh, the GM going to the, you know, there's four male players and a female player at a convention game and he asks all them and ignores whatever she has to say. And I had like the opposite. I think I had like two males and six, six women at the table. And I wanted to make sure all I, I looked at them all and I asked them what they're doing and, and what actions are they taking and where are they going and so on. Uh, and by the end of the game, I had a number of people who were very much into what was going on and excited to be able to uh, to make an do an action and, and and make a and do whatever they wanted to do and roll dice and and you know do fights or whatever uh, and I think that's that's the important thing is if you can try to keep uh, like the game where I was wanted to get out of the guy had the piece of pad, the book had his scenario like six inches from his face never looked at us really he droned uh, and he didn't engage the players and I think player engagement in any convention game or home game or anything. Um, is uh, is is very important. Uh, in fact, <clears throat> I think I think one of Matt's uh, weaknesses is that he doesn't he he doesn't always ping, and I, I think he does it more now. But he, it, 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 especially back in Critical Role season one, um, he doesn't always ping all the players enough, and so some people just sit there. Uh, and don't get a, get input on what's going on because he he doesn't maybe stop a long dialogue and go well what are you doing what are you doing you know give me give me a scene or give me an action now granted everybody has a different GMing style uh, but it's something where I'm like that's not that's something I, that he does that I don't like as opposed to the things he does that I do like yeah and I think the GM's job uh, the roles of the GM which is this uh, episode's uh, about 
it, it's really super multifaceted because we we just spent probably 15 20 minutes talking about feelings and understandings and emotions and the temperature of the room and the players and things like that and that's obviously a very interpersonal you know soft skill um, not soft as in weak but at soft as in you know interpersonal skills um, whereas at the same time you're also this tactician you're you're a rules lawyer you're the guy who understands you know all the mechanisms and then has to either you guys are playing field uh, sorry theater of the mind or actually on a board or a tabletop you know you actually have to direct and create the scene and then move all the pawns and the rooks and the knights and the queens like a chess master so uh, a gm's job is really difficult in that regard and some people uh, akin to something of like uh you know a spectrum or maybe like a venn diagram you'll see some people kind of lean towards more aspects than uh, another. But, you know, Mercer's a good example of somebody uh, who has a lot of those things, but I think wanes way more into the role play side, though he does great to create amazing big, large maps. Uh, one, of the ta- uh, one of the sentences here I wanted to bring up, and one of the ones I really wanted to ask you about, because you're a designer yourself, is um, be prepared for every one of your PCs adventures, hooks, and everything to be thrown aside and to be destroyed by your players. That's a GM's role is to be prepared to have that happen. As somebody who spends so much time creating something of their own and things like that, is it should a GM kind of give up or submit to the fact that whatever the player or characters decide to do, maybe in, in the case of the tattoo, they're going to do. So you can't be super sensitive or super possessive of a PC or an idea. I, I think that's true. Um... I mean, there's a couple of, well, yes. The base answer is yes. Uh, I think the most important thing any creator needs to learn when they let their creation loose is that it's not yours anymore. I was in a game, a convention game set in my own world setting, Akaze 5, and I remember thinking, this isn't quite how this scenario should go, and this isn't quite how some of this should go. Uh, but I had to realize it's not my game. You know, it's it's the game you're playing, and it's it's your interpretation of what I gave you. Um, what we don't want is Gary Gygax's letter to Dragon Magazine all those years ago, where he said, "Oh, have you modded Dungeons and Dragons? Have you added critical hits or two hit or hit locations, or have you changed how spells work?" Well, you're not playing D and D, and you're not playing my. You know, you're not playing the game that I created. You're not playing D and D. And instead of saying, you know, instead of acknowledging that, no, you're doing your own thing, it was like, you're not doing it the right way. Um, and and I think that is a wrong thing. Uh, with stuff like Champions and Fate and Savage Worlds and all these other ones that are more general, easily moddable, and even with D&D and, and other things, I think the idea is now is that, um, you know, if, if you if you add to the game, if you add third party or your own creative content, Perfect example is once again Matt Mercer. You know he large portions of that is he's he's done custom content with gunslingers and blood hunters and everything else. Um, there's you know no you're 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 playing your game you're playing a role playing game. It's not necessarily raw D and D or raw GURPS or raw whatever, um, but you're still playing a game and there's nothing wrong with that because whatever you do may turn into something bigger. I mean, if you really look at it, Pathfinder is what happens when somebody house rules, you know, and mods 30 edition or 3.5 D and D like mad. And then goes, well, now it's our, it's, it's, it stands on its own two feet. And a number of games actually, if I, that I recall uh, were a case of modding game a, and then eventually developing game B and it was its own thing. 
Um, so yeah, you have to be prepared to, uh, actually, I don't know. And now I got to get back to your question. <laughs> no, no, you're good. So, so okay, you're okay. kind of adding to, you do not have complete ownership uh, right. of your game once you release it out there, or in the case of a GM, once you get to the table and you start playing, you can create this world, these PCs, these casts, these ideas, all that I, uh, kind of you can bring from uh, your own side, but as soon as you give it to your players, it's out of your hand and they can make changes and decisions right. their own way. Right, and I've, I remember being in a, in a game where I, or, or hearing about games, or being in games where I felt that you know, you really just ought to write a novel because you want such tight control of player development and player action and what they're doing that uh, you're not comfortable with the players making decisions uh, that don't agree with where you want the story to go. And there is no way to account for every little thing the players can do or going to do or can do. And I think there's, I think, I think you can do bullet points, um, you know, and, and actually let me back up one quick second here. There's a huge difference. If you ever go to a convention, in my opinion, between a convention game and a home game, if you go to a four hour convention game, you really should be expecting. And I've come to realize that, you know, it's going to be a pretty linear story because you've only got four hours, uh, and there's only so much that you can do. And I pre-create the characters and, and set you a base scenario um, and if within, th you know, five minutes you go, well, I want to go, I, I don't want to go into your scenario. I want to go over the mountain and play in that play in some village over there. It's just like, do you, you do really the woods where grandma's up. house is. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah gotcha. You signed up for this game. We're not playing a sandbox. We're playing a, a movie. You're, you're in, this is a script. Not that, not that you have to, not that I'm giving you a script, but there is a set series of encounters and you, and if you want to get what you paid for when you got a ticket for my game, you're going to want to go through that. Um, but in a home game, uh, yeah, you may run into the problem of the characters don't bite at the, uh, at the, um, at the bait and they want, and they, and they get interested in something else. I mean, the joke that we see in the cartoon is the GM is guys face bombing because his carefully crafted NPC that is really important is over here alone. And the players are gathered around some soup cellar that, that they find utterly fascinating and they want to know more about that. Uh, and there's I've seen some GMs talk about like, yep, the whole campaign changed because I threw in something and the players latched onto it and they ran with it. And now I'm like, that's what they want. I guess that's what we're going to do. Yeah. And, you know, I've had that happen. I've literally burned the city down because of the actions of, of, of one of my players who decided to, I mean, the powder keg is obviously the reference you can make, but he happened to be playing a class that was in the midst of uh, a big scenario. And he made a, a selfish, self-centered decision, which triggered a series of events that led to the sacking and the burning of a city. And uh, we kind of coming back to that thing we were talking about earlier about like um, making your players understand the consequences of that. I've now run two campaigns since that game, but I stay in the same world and I always push the time frame forward. So th this is for me because I, I play in my Monday group, which is three and a half plus years we've been playing together. So they already know my lore. They already know my world. So I don't have to do a whole bunch of setup. They just know that it's a couple of years forward, a couple of years forward, you know, removed from the last campaign. But the repercussions of the refugee crisis uh, and the race relations and the economic hit of that event are still felt in world, you know, 12 plus years later. So it's kind of one of those uh, things uh, to where you're right. You should have no um, qualms about making a change 
or a shift because it could actually become a fantastic new addition to your world. Because half the time, I think our characters are also helping us write our worlds. You mentioned the guy who's, well, you just write your novel if you want things to go, you know, A, B, C, and then D. I, I agree. If a person wants to have everything linear like that, write adventures, like not proper uh, like uh, books, but you can still write adventures if you want to stay in the RPG sphere because that way you have a beginning, middle, and end. Uh, because uh, I find most of the times the best uh, things come from my pl players giving me a curveball, which then writes a story and does something of its uh, own. And uh, I will say this. Uh, you did mention a thing about telling you, uh, the people at the uh, table that, like, hey, this is an uh, adventure. This is what we have to go through. Like, you can't kind of um, buck that. This is what you kind of signed up for. One of the statements on here is the GM should never defend his or her actions. Uh, and obviously it's got a sub uh, subtitle here. It'll, it'll slow down the game. Don't allow your players to argue. You're the ultimate um, judge, jury, and executioner. What do you think about that statement in regards to that, Michael? Um, so uh, I don't know if I fully agree. Uh, Perfect. Because... That's the reason they're so bold. <laughs> right. Well, part of the reason is, is that uh, GMs, you know, everybody can make mistakes. And... Um, if you interpret a rule wrong, because there there comes an issue, especially like when I've been playing champions for 20 years, where you get the additions confused, or you have misremembered a rule. And I remember talking to some people like, oh my goodness, this actually says this, but for some reason I transposed a letter or a word, or I, I just thought and then never went back to double check. So um, I think a GM, uh, argument arguing at the table is is not a good thing um you know i think it's it's look you know we'll fix uh, uh, uh we should accept my accept the decision move on but then if you come around later and go hey you know i want to point out that actually you know the rule actually says this or the spell or the power says this then you also should go oh yeah my mistake so let's let's make sure that's uh not uh, a, a, mis a mistake we make next time. Um, now, uh, um, as in, you know, saying, what, GM, why did you do this? Uh, um, that's actually, I think, um, uh, that's something to also maybe to be saved for after the game. Now, in-game, you know, uh, if, if the player's like, why, why is this here? Or why is this create you know thing that's obviously overpowered for our power level or whatever is here, um, you know I think saying are you sure did did you, did you you do realize we're only third level or we really realize we're only two hundred point characters or you know and the GM may say yeah, I know okay you know there's there needs to be a bit of trust there but also um, you know in it may be like in character why don't you as somebody might say well why is that like that and I remember I think as a GM I'm like why don't you ask him you know don't ask me. Have your character ask this NPC. You know, I know why some of this is here. Uh, so, that, so not so. There's a, a couple layers to that about. Uh, you know, you're not a complete autocrat. There should be some give and take, but there should also be some trust. I should trust you as GM. It's not going to, uh, you know, throw something at us that is completely out of our league. Uh, but you should also trust that I'm not going to try to uh, uh, undermine everything you do at every point because. Uh, I don't trust you to play a run a fair game. If, if if you understand where I'm coming from with that, yeah. And th there's an interesting sort of give and take here because, as the game master, you have the ability to end the game at any moment if you want. 
You know, you can have the boulder, you know, rocks fall and you die, right? You can have um, them turn the corner and it's uh, a giant death, uh, you know, cruiser ship that blows their tiny petty uh, passenger, you know, um, plane out of the sky. Like anything can happen because you're the one who's dictating the scene and the scenario and things like that. Um, so there's there's the potential for you to be a, a tyrant or an autocrat and, and things like that. And you want to weigh that uh, obviously uh, uh, heavily. Uh, uh, but at the same time, I think part of the this where the statement comes from when I was pulling together all these all these uh, um, questions, uh, sorry, statements was uh, there's something to be said about kind of running your game with an air of confidence and an air of uh, respect. And, and I think uh, we as GMs have to convey to our players that like, I know this world, I know how people are going to react and how things are going to go. And when I throw something at you, it's not out of spite or anger or wanting to manipulate you or have a hard time with you. It's either this makes sense in world or this makes sense with the situation or however the module is. Or there's a purpose. There's an ultimate purpose here. There's no reason there should be a red dragon against third levels. Well... Who knows? Maybe it's actually an illusion set to, you know, by one of your rivals to fuck with you or to make a point. Or maybe this was a, a, a lucid dream sequence set in the, you know, the uh, astral plane or the ethereal realm. Like whatever it is, I cannot tell you now because as soon as, you know, I've, I, and this is literally, I, I gave you an example that I literally did. I threw a red dragon at a, a fourth or fifth level party who were freaking the F out. Like we're about to die, we're about to die, we're about to die. And I let all of them get kind of burned to a crisp in the fire, except for the last one who's a barbarian because barbarians and resistances somehow survived that first hit. So I got to just swallow him whole. And then I cut to, and then, then you know, it's X-Men, right? It's the danger room. And then your, uh, you know, si simulation ends and you're told by the people like, and that's why you should always be ready to get out there because you never know it's going to turn around the corner. And that was my whole sort of like wanting to, to do a funny setup and lead in. But initially the cries of freaking out of like, what are you doing? You're just killing our characters in one turn. This is so fucking unfair. I had to just stern face, just look at them and go, that's what the dragon does. That's what the dragon does until the great reveal of this was, you know, sur uh, the danger. Was an yeah. And um, yeah, I did something like that, except I think I told everybody but one that this is going to be a dream. And I proceeded to kill off their characters. And the guy finally twigged because he goes, you know what? Nobody else is really panicking over their characters dying. <laughs> something is up. But uh, yeah, what you're saying there actually makes a lot of sense that um, if there, but there, if there, if there is a trust between the players and the, and the GM, then things like that can happen and the you know a smart player would be like there's more to this than that. Now I will also admit um, in my Curse of Strahd game that I ran, and in the Powerless and Paragons game I'm running, they um, I I turned inspiration and PMP has something called resolve into a pool. So I had a bowl in front of me, and instead of giving people individual inspiration unless they did something really spectacular, I just threw poker chips into a bowl. And there were times where I held up a poker chip and looked at a player, especially the guy who this was his first campaign. And I said, you play it safe, fine. You play it risky, I'll throw a chip in the bowl. And in that, and, and in that case, it was, you know, I'm not going to, you know, you, if you do everything to not run into trouble or, or, or you know, or, or have me, the GM, go, now what can I do to mess with you? Um, sure, that's fine. But if you do do the risky thing and run the risk of me throwing something even more unpleasant at you or or, or being able to mess with your action, because this is Barovia, you know, but you do get a resource chip out of it. And 
uh, similarly in the PNP game, they captured a uh, a very strange vehicle, and there and I said, and I said uh, to the basically the technopath, you never get to fix this beyond certain parameters, but I give you this resource, this resolve chip that you can use to affect your die rolls, um, and the player understood. What I was saying was, if you make this ship work so that it flies, you bypass all the cool encounters I want you to run into. But if you don't, and you take this chip, you get a chip that you can use to play with your die rolls, but you get to encounter more of the world. And the player was like, sure, I'm, I'm good with that. No problem. Give me the chips. You know, and, and, and so I think you can, I mean, you're going to say you're bribing players, but I think there's a give and take there of, you know, let me, let me manipulate your decisions or let me manipulate the world a little bit to make it more fun for us in the long run. And if you trust me, it'll be fine. And in both cases, it worked out pretty well. And there's actually a great mechanic like that in uh, the tabletop game Gloomhaven. To where, um, if you've never played uh, uh, Gloomhaven, Maybe. anybody out there? I've heard of it. Oh, it, it it's 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 a really expansive game. It's like I think the base that's like one hundred and fifteen dollars, and then you can end up spending you know close to one sixty five. A friend of mine did for all the boards and all the additional classes and stuff like that. But it's basically any RPG campaign, well, a fantasy RPG campaign in board game form. You've, oh, every yeah, I think scenario, I've seen some of it. Yeah, every scenario has a number, and depending on the level, and you know, it branches out. And you, you, but as opposed to dice, you have cards. And one of the interesting things is when you have a character at the very beginning of a campaign, you draw a card which has your own individual um, goal, like for the entire campaign, which will retire your character. And a lot of these goals are antithetical to maybe what the party wants, like survive. Uh, well, you have one per adventure and you have one per the entire campaign. The ones that have heard the entire campaign could be stuff like, you know, survive five dungeons with only one health or kill 20 elites. Like the, uh, but, but someone's for per adventure could be literally like watch two of your uh, allies uh, fall and faint. Things that are antithetical to the game. Things that are antithetical to what you want to do as a player. But they create such an interesting story immediately afterwards because your other teammates don't know that you're doing that. So they might look at you and go, what the hell, man? Why'd you let me drop? Why didn't you heal me? Like, like there's – and that's where the, the game – because there's no GM. That's where the cards are doing that. But as a GM, uh, I think that's a great thing to do as well because you have this kind of back and forth with your players consistently of like, okay, you trust me. But do you trust your ally? Do you trust the other player character at the table? Like they've been holding a secret out for you like – yeah, this ties back in, and it, I love that mechanic, and I've done that. Uh, I probably should do it more, honestly. I, I wish I, I wish I, I did it more. I'd probably think about that, but that's a good thing to do as well. So, yeah, GMs, we are, um, we are told uh, we can be totalitarians, and I think we shouldn't um, never you know, admit flaws or mistakes like that, but we also should, at the same time, have that air of confidence and trust and respect and stern kind of leadership. Um, yeah. Um, now, uh, as a similar note, though, as GM, uh, you should be confident in your players and yourself, and your players should be willing to accept that there may come a point where you say, uh, guys, we have to take a break. I need to think about what you just did. Um, and I know, I think in Curse of Strahd I did that and some other things where you say, uh, "Hey, let's uh, let's all take a bio break. Let's all get drinks and food, and I'm going to spend five, fifteen minutes and consider your actions." Because if you're letting your players do, you know, take that left turn when you want them to go straight or go right. I told you to go right. Um, 
they should accept that you know it, you shouldn't do it a lot because you may try to you may try to consider ramifications of your story when you and when you make your notes. But there may be times where you should they should accept that you may look at them and say, yeah, we're gonna have to take a break because I need to uh, consider what you've done and 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 maybe uh, figure out what I can do and and where the plot can go from here. Um, and I know that at one point I was in a game that ended early because the GM kind of said, I've got to kind of consider what you've done and how to, how to work with this. Cause you also kind of bypass some of my notes. And, and I think that you, you need to accept that there may, as GM, there may be a time where you, you need to take a step back and regroup and consider and thought and plot and be like, okay, guys, you know, game's going to take a break. Game's going to end early. Um, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll consider and think and consolidate and be ready for next session. I've, I've, I try to avoid leaving the table. So, Michael, I, I wouldn't ever personally stand up and even tell my, te- my team, like, hey, I, I need some time to mull this over. I have a couple of tricks I use there, which I will not reveal for any of my friends listening. But, uh, but, but some, some, sometimes it will be something as simple as like, okay, this session ends, you know, 15 minutes earlier than usual. And then I'll use that time to be like, oh, damn, good thing they didn't open that door because I was not ready for the repercussions of what was happening next. But I found the, um, and and this is just from my perspective. Uh, I found most of the time to where you need to like to stall or to to figure out what's going to happen to the world can be um, can be like like uh, I I don't know what the English is. You can create that time. I think is what I'm trying to say by just um, using a little mental uh, gymnastics on your players. And let's say they just do an action and they went into a room you didn't expect or kill a person you didn't expect. I go super into detail about what's going on around them, or I'll throw in a thing of like. Yeah, uh, did, did we make it out of there all right? Sure, roll perception or what, investigation. You think, but there's something that's off. And, and telling somebody that there's something that's off immediately triggers <laughs> all of my players to be like, shit, there's a check we need to make. There, there, there's a room we didn't look for. There's somebody looking at us. Is there magic? And they spend the next 30 minutes trying to detect magic or figure out what's going on. And while that's happening, I'm now literally behind the scenes looking like, like through my notes or what's going on. Like, okay, okay, what are they going to do? The next, what are they going to do? And then I, then if it's not the end of the session, then I'll be like, okay, I have an idea what to go next. Because sometimes at the table, especially if I'm in the middle of the session, not towards the end of the session, I really don't want to derail um, uh, the the momentum. But at the same time, I need I need that um, time to to bullshit my way back out. And I also I'm well, I'm kind of tr- go ahead. Oh well, I, I think then I think that's a difference in style because I know. Uh, we gamed in my living room in my condo in Maryland and we had the kitchen right there. And I might, I might, I would stay with my, at my little GM station maybe and maybe write some notes or consider what they did. But I might say, Hey, you know, I, I, I might not get up, although I might go into my office with somebody and say, okay, Hey, you know, I might pull a player into my office, which was, uh, you know, room down the hall and talk to him. But it wasn't like I got up and left the table and they just stood, stood, sat there and stood at each other. Often I encouraged them to get up, some of them might take a smoke out on the balcony. Some of them might just go out in the balcony for some air. Some might go get drinks. Some might go hit the bathroom. Uh, and my thought was, you know, uh, you know, we're going to take a short break because, uh, you know, we weren't on camera. We weren't, we weren't, we weren't required to sit there for, you know, we might play also for six to eight hours. Uh, and so we might take some regular breaks or people might get up on their own. But what I'm, what I'm saying is that you tell the players we're going to take five or 15 and then you you know go over everything and 
and and go, okay, I, this is how I can pull the threads together, and this is how I want the game to proceed. If if it's toward the end of the session and you're like really at a loss, yeah, you can also end it early. And like I said, there may be a point where you grab a player and say, and talk to them out of earshot of everybody else. Maybe if there's if there's somebody that you trust to uh, keep mum, you might ask them advice. Um, if especially maybe if they've run the scenario before, because I've I kind of we kind of had that issue with the Curse of Strahd. Uh, well, you, you know, what do you think? Should I do this? You you know this game, uh, you know, and and you get a you get an outside opinion. And, um, you know, stalling for time. I mean, it also depends on like how good you feel you are at improv and just making stuff up as you go, which is not, I don't think, one of my super strengths. Um, so it's, I think, different jamming style. Yeah, and that's kind of uh, comes down to me. Like, I kind of do a lot of working backwards with my games when, like, especially in that case where uh, I had to sack a whole city uh, and there was a riot. I literally had to rethink what was going to happen with the city and what the next you know step is for that character because that city was so pivotal to his backstory and now that city's on fire. So I, I do have to uh, – I, I think I have that – I think I'm decent at that. So I'm, I'm more willing to do that than to have to make a, a physical break, or, uh, in which case, like, I think – you know, I, I think that physical break for me just ruins momentum. Also, that's the musician in me. I like the idea of tempo and I like the idea of like, even if we're up or we're down, we're still kind of, kind of keep flowing. We're in the pocket and the idea of a hard stop. It, I'm worried about like, oh, well, then people are going to zone out for a second and we'll come back in. So that's just my personal take on it. I, I, yeah, I know. If, I, I know. I think the one or two times I did it, it was also like right after a big fight or something of that effect. So it was kind of a natural pausing point like a chapter end and before we start the new chapter let's take a break and let's let me think about something um i like also i will stress uh, curse of strahd because uh, this is where i'm drawing a lot of my thoughts on and i because i ran it for like 15 months 33 35 sessions um Damn. it's such a well-written sandbox that it's that players can't go off the map very easily um Literally, actually, if you know the scenario. <laughs> the mists, yeah, you can't go yeah, through But mists. you can't, it's kind of hard to wander off into something that's not described because they've broken everything down. Um, but there may be, if they like, if they do something. Now, I will admit, the players' characters, not the players, the characters fell on each other due to a serious uh, in-game consequences of character actions. But that's the risk you run with certain parts of the Curse of Strahd uh, scenario and some of the uh, places you can encounter there there can be awful repercussions if you're not careful um, and you know there was and we actually I think had to pause and go okay so and actually in both games we had to pause because it was like okay well we're losing two player characters so the players have to decide you know, and what are we going to do and there was some discussion there because you know, in both games, the party was broken apart due to uh, encountering magical items and and things that put flaws that detrimentally worked to party cohesion. Um, so, I, you know, I think there is a point though where you may have to pause the game and be like, "Okay, guys, got to come to you. Have to come to a decision. Are are we've got to come to a decision about what's going to happen? Do we end the game? Do we keep going? Which plot ties all the way back into the thing we were talking about at the beginning of this of keeping the game on track or keeping all the players together. And in both cases, um, a player, a, one or more player characters left the game or were killed off and new characters were brought in. 
So that ties into one of these statements I also want to talk about as well, which is the GM should uh, discourage metagaming. That's one of those times I think metagaming and breaking the, the tempo and the scene actually makes sense. Because I, I, I think, and, and you mentioned having a, a, the boss battle be kind of a, a chapter end. I typically don't run any more of my session, regardless of where we're at, if it, we just did a big boss battle because they're so exhausting and they have such a um, you know a finality because typically it's the end of an arc of various you know, sessions that I'm spent. I think they're spent. I, they're either oodling over the you know the, the the concept of new loot or new things to get, or if they're alive, they're um, depressed about you know which person might have died or what uh, consequences might have come. So that's a time where I literally go, okay, guys, if we were to play more, like this would just kind of ruin, like this is a good stopping point. Think about next time you come back, what you want to do with, you know, the loot I've handed out to you or who wants to tune to what, or are you guys going to go back to the village and like, or are you going to go home? Or like, I literally will ask him that type of stuff. So then I can prep the next session. Um, uh, the interesting thing though, is that, uh, because the I, I could not control pacing to that degree when I was running Strahd. And like I said, we would start at like one in the afternoon and end seven. Yeah, I mean, you've got a completely eight. different perspective because like the six-hour game and also the six-hour game based off of uh, an established adventure or module. So like there's beat, well, there, there's there's beats you can hit and there's certain places to where like it makes a lot of sense, but there are certain things like inroads in between like, you know, Barovia and uh, I forget what the the next city over. You'll have to excuse me. The one uh, Velaki. Thank you, Velaki. In the road between Barovia and Velaki, there's maybe some random encounter charts, but you really want to get to Velaki because once you get to Velaki with their burgomasters and their families and the lake uh, just north of there and like all the stuff that's happening there, I'm not going to spoil anything for anyone who hasn't played. But I'm just going to say there's so much richness in Velaki and there's so much richness in Barovia. I would never want to end a session on the road in between because I feel like uh, one for tempo, it doesn't make sense because you want that finality of, you know, over done off the road and here's a new thing that I think is a great way to pick up. Uh, a lot of my stuff, by the way, I, I've said this multiple times with various guests because of a musician background for, you know, 15 plus years, I think of everything like a song and ups and downs and valleys and peaks. So that's just an anticlimactic, like uh, sort of uh, resolution or cadence. So I, I, I can see why that would be so difficult. Whereas when I'm running a home game in my own world, like I can kind of pick up and drop anytime I want because it's my own world. Yeah. Uh, um, I tried to uh, end each session, though, on, on often on a important point. Um, and a boss battle, per se, may occur in the middle of that, you know, that six to four, eight hours. So, you know. Oh, four hours into the game, around 3 p.m., we finish a big fight. I'm not going to end it there, because even if the players are like wiped out. But that's also a point where we go, okay, guys, uh, let's take a, bio, you know, as we put in a bio break, let's get drinks, let's get snacks. Um, I'm going to wipe the map clean. Uh, you know, you guys can all, you know, uh, and then we'll sit down, at, you know, five, ten minutes later, and I, and then we can go, okay, you know, you've done X, you've cleared out this, you've fought that, you've gained this. You know, and, and then I would do, I'm going to go around the room. You know, I'd say, I'll go to each of the players around the table. Well, what are you going to do now? You know, give me a scene. Or I would I would just pull back and i go, okay, this is what you've done. You're all here. What are you going to do? And then they'll start talking in character. And all I have to do is sit back and take notes and pay attention until they come to a decision. So when we finally went to wrap up, I would try to be like, yeah, 
you know, I, I try to I try to pull a Chris Perkins or a Matt Mercer and be like, yep, we're going to end it here and we'll pick that up next next week. Um, but I also had players who very much wanted to often to keep going. I mean, it was Sundays. I think if we played on Saturdays, we I, I there may have been we may have actually like can we go it would have been like guys we've been playing for 12 hours what um i i actually think that that may have happened if we'd run on not on a sunday because the players were really into that game and wanted to often wanted to keep pushing forward and forward and forward uh, which was encouraging it showed that they really wanted it um so yeah as gm you have to balance you know what what time is it is time running out um you know how long? Uh, uh, what's gonna? What? What do I think will happen next? Because in some cases, I may say, "Yeah, I know where you're going. It's too late to actually encounter that." Uh, and yeah, let's, you don't want to start the boss battle in the last thirty minutes because of just how combat works. You know, this is yeah. not going to take thirty minutes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's. I mean, the person who was incredible about that was uh, Chris Perkins because Dice Camera Action is two hours, and when you factor in a couple on. of other issues, it's like an hour and 45 minutes that he has to actually run the we game. We talk about Mercer a lot, but I want to say something. Perkins, and he's, whereas Mercer is all about creating his own world and obviously uh, do, doing with, with what, he, what he wants in three or four hours. I forget how long they, they, four, they, usually they run. Four. Yeah, so in four hours. Perkins has half that time, if not less, and he looks at uh, and pre- preps all the stuff out. He'll always post like what the name of the episode is going to be and like where he thinks it's going to go. It's it's a little more linear, obviously, than than Critical Role is, but it never feels like that. It just all perfectly works out. Like he's very very good, and obviously he worked at the company that makes the damn thing, so he knows it inside and out. Yeah, well, um, well, Perkins uh, Perkins is an interesting case because. Uh, I actually have pretty much decided I'm done with Acquisitions Incorporated because he's not running it anymore. Uh, and I kind of listened yeah. to the guy that replaced him, and I was kind of like, eh. But Perkins was interesting because Dice Camera Action really is a vehicle to show off whatever the current module is. Mm-hmm. They've done, um, off the top of my head, they've done uh, Curse of Strahd, they did Storm King's Thunder, they did um, Tomb of Annihilation, and I believe they're up in Waterdeep because I remember uh, Holly, uh, who plays uh, Strix, making a comment that they have a a, uh, a building, a, I think an inn in Waterdeep, which means that they're definitely doing the Dragon Heist thing. Um, so he has the advantage that he has a pre-written scenario to run them through, but he's also kludging together stuff. He's making stuff up. And he is also trying to chop it down into two-hour segments. Um, now, granted, he also does uh, – he's admitted – he does a lot of stuff behind the scenes. He changes the villains because their levels never ma- – almost invariably never matched what they were fighting. They're only like ninth level, and you're like, wait a minute. If you go all the way through yeah, Strahd – It's been years, and they, they, should, they should have been way higher. I, yeah. yeah, he does a lot of that. Um, but he, but he, does a, uh, he does a lot of uh, – and yeah, I, I, I've learned a lot from him. Um, uh, actually, Perkins is responsible for what I call the uh, Chris Perkins tension meter. You know, if I have a choice of A or B given to me by what the players are going to do or what or, or what an NPC is going to react as and such, um, and it's and it fits the setting, the, the, I often think, well, what will get what will provide what will raise the tension level of the scenario or of the game or the campaign, and this is. Very true in Curse of Strahd. Uh, um, I had characters like they would run off the map, and I would, I would, I didn't care what their stats said. I, I would wait until the most opportune and most tension, 
you know, high moment to introduce them back on the map uh, with the idea that, you know, once they're off the map, they are there to to raise the stakes whenever I feel it's most appropriate. Uh, and that's something I kind of learned from him that and and and, you know, yeah, being a little more free with tinkering with what characters can do because it just makes a more exciting game. Yeah, I, I can imagine uh, in this prep and probably during the streams as well that his brain is constantly doing like uh, uh, cost benefit analysis of like, do I introduce this character now? Oh, that might take too long. Oh, that's not flowing with this. Let's not do that. I'm going to drop that. Nix the second half of this. Take away two challenges here. Make this bigger or smaller. Like I can just, Im- I, I really, if we, if we could open a, a cranium up and watch the process, I'd be really interested to, to, to see how a, a DM or GM's mind starts just activating, um, especially when their players start going off off the rails there. Uh, because I've run the same, you know, I've run Strahd as well as you have, and we've, uh, I've had watching him play Strahd and realizing where he does things differently and doesn't. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure a lot of those are based off of the tempo and uh, the, him reading where his characters are at or what they can survive or what they can't survive. And I'm like, it's pretty masterful because he does it all with an air of confidence, which we talked about a little bit earlier, an air of confidence and casualness. But then whenever he feels that lull, he brings the heat back up, turns the tension and then keeps the game flowing. Yeah, and I, I think one of the prime examples is I remember asking another friend of mine, a friend of mine who uh, listened to the uh, Ice Cap reaction when he did Curse of Strahd, and I said, hey, uh, uh, I, I was like, because one of the characters was not there for a session, but the player character was, and the player character got killed and melted in the snow and ice. It was obviously a simulacrum. And I was like, wait a minute, does Strahd even have that spell? And my friend Matt was like, no, he doesn't. But, you know, he's got all that library. It's like, oh, yeah, I should just give him whatever spell I think he needs off camera. So I, you know, I actually introduced someone. And and the player characters were very confused when they they were like, that's Strahd. But here is Lord Vasily von Holtz, who we all thought was Strahd and looks an awful lot like him. What's going on? And, of course, they get into a fight. And when they finally destroy von Holtz, he melts away to snow and ice. They're going... Oh, that, you know, and nobody came to me and said, can Strahd actually do that? Because nobody cared, but because they thought it was just awesome that, you know, that tension level. But that that was sort of a realization that, yeah, you know, I can, I should, if I, you know, I don't have to, don't worry about his exact stats until it's an actual tactical fight. Uh, Let him do things, let him be where you want him to be to, uh, to, um, you know, raise the stakes in the game to, to entice players, to to raise the tension, to make them question, and that was you know that's something that that seeing Perkins do that and seeing how he would fiddle with things and manipulate, I was like, I, it made me feel more confident. Oh yeah, you know, as long as I don't just def, uh, by GM fiat wipe out the party or something, yeah, there's a you can be feel free to tinker around a little bit and and uh, and and mess around with, and and just throw things out there to make the game interesting and fun for everyone. And that becomes, I think, the most memorable parts. I mean, uh, th- it's a tangent, but it'll, it'll make sense in a GM context in one second. When I was going into uh, university, I spoke with a good friend, mentor of mine, who's you know older than me. She had like 15 years on me, and I was like, you know, any tips for me when I go to college and stuff like that? And she's like, yeah, um, when your friends tell you, let's go out and grab a pizza after a concert or a movie at 1 a.m. and stuff like that, do it. Because you're never going to remember the, you know, uh, hours you spent, te- uh, you know, prepping for a test or how difficult that one lab was. But you sure as hell are going to remember, you know, your Denny's, drunken Denny's conversations or your foolishness and stuff like that. That's the shit that's memorable. 
Uh, and that's the stuff I remember about mostly from uh, college and university. And that tying back into being a GM is your characters are not going to care as much about, oh, yeah, we ran the module in the room and we got to the thing and I did the opportune action or I did the the mechanical thing that's, you know, here, you know, makes sense logically. But they sure as shit will remember when all of a sudden, you know, a red dragon comes out of fucking nowhere and they're like, what are you doing? What's going on? Or, you know, when all of a sudden, like, I didn't, wait, I, wizards don't have that ability. Well, this one does. Or this one's right. something different or something special. And then immediately it switches everything on the dime because you never want to get into the feeling. This is, this is uh, Matthew Coville, who is a great, um, I'm going to say dungeon, uh, dungeon master, uh, game master philosopher. The reason I say mm -hmm. that phrase is I've watched him play and I don't necessarily like him as a GM. No disrespect to you, Mr. Coville, but I love his thoughts and his podcasts and his um, YouTube videos about the, the art of GMing and, and running games. Yes. So that's why I'm going to understand what you mean. Yeah. 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 There's, some, there's some other there's some other big names that I think I have that like I like what you have to say, but I don't like everything you do in practice. Absolutely. Nerdarchy. I'm not interested in the way they run their games, but I like the conversations that they have there as well. Other people like right. that. Uh, WebGM. Uh, WebDM, sorry. Um, so Coville talks about this and he talks about uh, you want your game to be more than just the thing you guys do on X night. Like the last thing I want is to feel like, well, everybody just shows up to my table because it's that part of the night and that's what we do. And there, there's no excitement or no memorability or it's, it just becomes root and part of your schedule the same way a TV show or a video game might be at times to where you're kind of playing it, but not really enjoying it, kind of doing it out of habit. I never want to get to that habit. Mode. Yeah. And those types of moves like you did with that simulacrum, which breaks the habit of feeling like we know what's going to happen next and as a fucking curveball is the type of stuff that keeps it fresh. And well, and, and it was important for me to do some of this, uh, and to put my own spin on it because um, uh, to to summarize the whole uh, timeline there, um, we wanted to play some five E. Uh, I had been very I had been very anti D and D for a long time. I played some four E. Felt it was very tasteless. Um, a lot. Of, I think we said it was like very cardboard characters because everybody was the same. But mm -hmm. I got more and more interested in 5e, and it, it had elements that I really liked. Inspiration, flaws, personality bonds, backgrounds, and all this. And I thought, oh, this is really more the game I want to play. Um, and uh, so there was some discussion. One of the people in our gaming group wanted to run, and it was, and it was, I think it was said, you should run Curse of Strahd. It is the best module out there. It's going to give us the really good experience that we all know. It's going to, you know, it's going to have these uh, things that, that are going to be really a plus. So we played in it, and uh, we had a really good time, even though we had a miserable time. If you understand Curse of Strahd, you can understand how that the players had a characters had a miserable time. The players, yeah, Garza Corridor, dreary, never sunny. Yeah. Um, and then, but that was the Saturday group. And then for Sunday, there was like, I said, well, you know, I really like Curse of Strahd, and I'd like to try running it for you guys. But it so happened that the GM from the Saturday group and one of the players from the Saturday group were in the Sunday group. And I knew, I said, well, first of all, uh, they both know the story. They both know the, the book. Um, so, but, you know, I got to trust them. And, I, and, and the one guy very much kept, uh, kept quiet. The other guy sometimes was like, no, stop talking. Um, but uh, uh, I was like, I got I to make it mine and I got to put my own spin on it. And so 
you know, I, 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 I really went descriptive heavy. I really tried to tried to go with like how spells look. And I, I, I added little elements and tweaks and I actually yanked a few things out and put some things in like, I don't like the rock. Uh, and I put a, I put a revenant on the bridge instead of the, the simple illusion of Strahd. Cause I was like, that's boring. Um, and I added elements and, and stuff and there was like a sea monster in the lake and everything. Uh, and the players, so the players knew like two, the two players knew they're like, okay, we know the story. We know where things are. We know, but because of the card draw, we don't know where we have to go. We don't know, you know, and then they began to realize we don't know what Mike has done to, to tinker with it, to make it more his game and to make it more alive. Um, and, you know, and when it was all said and done, uh, certainly, you know, the, uh, everybody was like, this is one of the, either the best or one of the best games we've ever been in. And so it worked and, and nobody, neither of them at any point came to me and said, well, you're doing it wrong. You know, they, they were more than willing to respect what I was trying to do and how I was trying to do it, and 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 were more than appreciative of of, of what I was doing to to make the game, uh, what I you know a, something different from the last time they played and when they'd listened to Critical Role and the Strand Gamers podcast and everything, and they're like, yeah, this is this is not those games. It's still Curse of Strahd, um, and if I you know and if and if I do it, it, it it'll I, I can put my t- uh, spin on it. And that's actually um, we're, we're actually way over time but I, i'm super I happy about no i'm super happy about this how this went there's two two bits i wanted to hit on and i'll do it concisely i'll try to even smoosh them together if i can um okay. one of which is the dm should steal never apologize the second is uh the dm is not the guy you've seen on tv slash the internet stop comparing and um i think you, we've been mentioning multiple times now Perkins and Coville and all these guys and whatnot as well. And we've even mentioned our own players running the same thing and coming back to us or asking them about how they'd run or something like that. I'll say this about a GM. I found and I now truly believe that the GM community, the DM community is like one of the most free um advice giving free tip giving like here's an idea like wanting to be hel- as helpful as possible uh, th- than in almost any field i've known and like and i usually used to think musicians were great but a lot of guys are jaded don't like the way you play critique you blah 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 every dm and gm i've talked to if you just even start talking about like all oh, my players did that oh here's what you can do or have you tried this this is what you should do here's my idea here's my pc here's my character and if i've sat at their table i think they understand the same way as i sit at my table of like i like that i'm stealing that I like that. I'm taking that. We have yeah. such an open community that it's 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 so um it's so one inspiring, but two, I think it should also at the same time not be something that lets you ever feel like you're lesser than just because somebody does something differently or better. Um, uh, actually, it, it reminds me of the advice I one of my new players um, had never really played in a long term ca- campaign, uh, and I told him I said, "Well, you should try." going to any local game conventions, not that Maryland has a whole lot. And he was like, and his attitude was, well, I don't know. They're going to judge me or whatever. And I said, no, I can, I can tell you, nobody's going to tell you to get up from the table. I mean, almost nobody's going to tell you to get up from the table or, 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 or whatever. But I, I, but the point I said though, is that if you also don't know what you're going to get, but um, the meta point that I was trying to make to him was, if you go and you sit at a table with people you don't know and a GM you don't know, at bare minimum, 
two things are going to happen. One, you're going to be like, I like what that guy did. I want to try to do that. Or that was terrible. I should never do that. And I said, that's one of the more important things you can get from a convention game is you can be like, this guy was a, this was a really great game. What made it great? I like how we did X. Or uh, when I was a guest at UConn, I was like, oh, my God, I want out of this game because he's not engaging the players. He's like monotoning. He's just reading off a piece of paper. Note to self, never do that. Now, the funny thing about that game was at the end was that he did a random die roll. I got the source book for the game we played, and he handed everybody a goodie bag with dice and pencils and water cups and everything. And I was like, okay, he may not be the world's greatest engaging GM, but he certainly was appreciative of being at the convention and having players, and we all got some swag out of it. Well, you know, sure, that was four hours, but it wasn't, like, awful. <laughs> so, okay, maybe it was all came out okay in the end. Um, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think telling telling new players or new GMs, uh, you know, uh, uh, much like the line from uh, Big Trouble in Little China, you know, it's all a giant salad bar. Take what you want, ignore the rest. You know, find out what works for you. And Mercer just had to go online and talk about that because, you know, you get people going, oh, well, he doesn't do voices like Mercer's no good, or he they don't do this, they're not any good, or they don't talk like Perkins, you know, French accent drow, he's not any good. It's like... I'm not a trained voice actor. I don't, I don't, I've not been doing this for years. I've not gone to uh, uh, seminars and classes and everything else that he has done or they have done. You know, there was, uh, I don't know if I told you last time I was on here, but I remember actually apologizing because I could not remember fully or get the voice that I'd used for a character. And I had one of my players say, shut up. He goes, you are going above and beyond for what we know that you normally do, you are really bringing everything to life. Just keep going. Don't worry about it. Uh, and I, I, I would, it really made me uh, hearten me. I was like, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to keep going then, you know? Uh, and, 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 and I know that everybody was, uh, you know, like uh, they were patient. They weren't going to be like, Oh, you know, you can't just do a improv, uh, you know, instantly come up with a voice and mannerisms. You know, no, uh, 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 we're not going to hold that against you because you know what we're having, we're here to have fun. You are not paid to do this. Um, yeah. And that's, a, I think a big and important thing. I know there's a few people on the internet who've openly admitted that they're pay for play GMs and DMs. And I know technically you can call any of this dice camera action or this critical role or any of the, uh, you know, high rollers, you can technically call them paid DMs because they do get AdSense and blah, 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 blah out of that. But realistically, the 99 percentile of all GMs and DMs out there, we are not making money. We are probably losing money due to gas and pizza and all the shit we had to do. And our whole objective is selfless. We want the people around us to have a good time. And I've had uh, literally had um, a conversation with a friend of mine who, who explained it to me is this way. He goes, I can have the worst day and I can have the worst game. But at the end of the game, if I ask them to have a good time, they said, yes. How about you? I always say yes, because if they had a good time, I won. So we, because of that kind of concept, I think we should always push that A to anyone who wants to get into this thing. Like, trust me, everybody wants you to succeed. Your players want you to succeed. Other GMs want you to succeed. We'll even go above and beyond to be like, try this module, try this tactic, here are these tips. Here's this podcast you could listen to, self-plug, my RPG podcast. Like you can you can't you can't go wrong and, and 
the only uh, well, you can go wrong because you can still be a dick and be like a gatekeeper, but you shouldn't you shouldn't ever feel like you're not welcome into a right. community like this. And and I think anybody who's listening to this, you know, um, I, you know, you need to keep an open mind. Not like Perkins has done some voice acting. Um, um, uh, Mercer, of course, does it all. Everybody yeah. in the show who's run a game, everybody but Ashley's run a game. They all, but they're actors and voice actors. Even uh, even if you look at um, Di- uh, Dice uh, Acquisitions Incorporated with, jeez, uh, I forget the two the two guys who started all that, uh, Mike Rahulik and Jerry. Yeah. Um, they've run games, but I don't think they actually go into all the voicing because they don't. But they they still run games. Everybody everybody uh, has their strengths and weaknesses. Um, sure, I try. I, I've come to realize that if I over emote, you know, if I really, if I, if I, if I just, you know, if if I am a huge ham as GM, first of all, it gets more of the point across, and players really enjoy it, uh, and and they get in more into the game because you're not being dull. And even if you, even if you uh, uh, try to, the cadence of your voice or the little things, because you know, I, I, Tuesday night I was like, they were talking to somebody. And I said, well, "Give me a moment." I said, "Just give me a second. I want to think here before I jump into this." And I, and I said, "Okay, I, I kind of know how I want to have this character talk to you." Not, not that I said that part. That was how my brain worked. And then I started talking, you know. And and it's funny too. I mean, you can. I think anybody can can work at that and and. and Bring a little color. Uh, one of the pieces of advice I got, which was funny because that's what I was doing in Maryland, was talk to yourself in the car, practice your lines, practice. You know, if you have, if you have a scenario coming up, think about what you want to have them say and how you want to have them say it. And uh, I did that to the point where I could. I, I really had like this is how Strahd is going to talk to the characters, and I could. I could. You are a most troublesome held. I give you a simple task. I ask you to bring a family heirloom to the castle, and you failed me. And I was like, "Hey, you know that works." Uh, and that was what I would do. And, and when they, and when that voice started hitting, coming out, when I started talking like that, all the players were like, "Because <laughs> they were like, uh, oh, I think I know who that is. This could be bad.'" And and because uh, there was a dream sequence where like the the one character, the, the bard, the herald was talking to a shadow figure before he really realized who it was. But I started talking like that, and I knew there were players at the table going, "Oh, he's talking to Strahd. This is going to be interesting." And uh, and 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 it, you know, it really was just a, a slower cadence and, and maybe an inflection. You know, you don't have to be Mercer. Uh, you don't have to be Perkins. You don't have to be some of the other guys. You just have to, you know, do what works. And maybe your players don't want a bunch of funny voices, uh, but you know, you want to be confident. You want to project. You want to maybe maybe stand up for certain characters, but certainly look everybody in the eye. I think that helps because uh, you want to engage. Um, but you don't have to be somebody who gets paid big bucks to be on video games. Uh, and 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 to do voices and anime and everything as fun as that sounds and as awesome would be to have Mercer as GM or player because he's just as, he does the Gonzo stuff as player too, um, you know it, it it really is like he said in his letter and the way I've thought it's 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 what works, uh, you know if you can't do you're accents, the best, yeah you're yeah. also the best GM for your table because you're there and you're reacting and like yeah you said it we'd love to have all these amazing uh, people at our tables and play underneath them. 
but they're not going to do that or, you know, it's not likely. So who do you have? You have the person who's sitting at that table who wants like is actively he or she wants to help you. And like, how can I help you with enjoying this game more? Like that's as yeah. good as it gets. And and I'm not going to disparage any player who wants to try to voice, put a voice to their character. I, I actually have some people in my Tuesday game who can, can do like, you know, they're doing Irish or English or whatever. And I'm like, and I admit I can't do that. Now I've also had massive allergy attacks. I don't get them out here in, in Denver, but in Maryland, I had horrible sneezing fits for 12 hours you know, where I, I would skip Kleenex and go straight to a dish towel. Uh, and, uh, you know, my voice is way more raspier than it used to be. Um, you know, and I, and I said, there, there's, there's ways of speaking I don't think I can do anymore because my vocal cords are like, nope, we've been abused. You know, but it lets me do a good revenant. I can speak in a hoarse whisper really well. Um, and, you know, there's, so there's, there's certain strengths I have and such and, and uh, uh, and I you know and actually what was even funny is I had a, a my paladin character in in Jeff's game had been hanged, uh, so you know they meet her and they start talking to her and she's whispering like, my name is Frost and everybody was like and it was funny people were like why do you talk like that what's with that voice I said why don't you ask her you know but it was pulling it once again and you know, like don't meta game in game but uh, you know I was able to do a little bit there and and. Uh, and it, it worked. You know, I was the only one really kind of doing that because the rest of the players had a different attitude, but I decided to stick with it. Uh, and it's what works. You know, if you're G- there, you can have a bad GM. You can have a bad game. Um, uh, one of the things that, that I also stole from Ross Watson and I, and I did in, in my Curse of Strahd game and others is, is you know, uh, is, you know, what, what am I doing right? Uh, or what did I do right? What, you know, what, what how am I doing? Because I want that feedback. Um, and, you know, is everybody having, and I will say it, like con games, I think everybody having a good time. Are you enjoying what's going on? Uh, and I think maybe to be, even if, even if they're being polite and they say, yeah, I, you know, at least nobody's like, no, it sucks. Get me out of here. I mean, I'm like, well, nobody's ever done that. Um, and, and, and I, I remember the one criticism I got was, Oh, that! Oh, yeah! Rewriting the chorus to Henry V, the opening chorus to Henry V, to match the game—that was great. You just kind of needed to slow it down at the end. I was like, "Yeah, I could tell I started speeding up because of nervousness." And they're like, "Yeah, other than that, <laughs> everything was great." Um, but at that give and take, the the having the having players, you know, point out, "Oh, yeah, you did this," or even asking players to point out what other players did that was awesome to to positive reinforce the experience to table, you know, have it saying, Oh no, you know, don't feel self-conscious about X. That was awesome. You need to do more of X. Uh, you know, that helps. Cause I will admit also, I, I had a huge critical role flint fan, the new guy, one of the new, very new players. And he got very self-conscious about what he was doing because a lot of the other people weren't doing what he thought, you know, was gaming per critical role, but he was told, no, no, just keep doing what you're doing. It's your thing. You do it. They're going to do their thing. Don't, 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 and by the end of the campaign, he was writing and, and performing, you know, just uh, vocally uh, his own bardic songs. And everybody was applauding and roaring and like, that's awesome. Yeah. My quote that I'm going to use from a more recent film, Into the Spider-Verse, is uh, the suit always fits. Eventually, <laughs> the suit always fits. Same, oh, uh, best. Oh, yeah. That's it. That was, that was an, I'm not, not, not going to spoil who said or what said that, but please watch Into the Spider-Verse. But like, that's what I tell uh, any aspiring DM, GM, and even players who are, who are nervous as to what they're, what they're in, getting into. The suit always fits. Eventually, it'll always fit. You'll get, you're going to find out what it is that you like and what you're going to do, and it's all going to make sense. So regardless of any of the statements and arguments we've had here, you're going to find your way. 
which is a perfect way to end this episode of my RPG podcast. Michael, if people want to find you on the internet and contact you, what's the best means? Uh, well, you can you can look for Michael Serbrook on Facebook. I think I'm the only Michael Serbrook on Facebook. Uh, you can also look for Evil Beagle Games and find Michael Serbrook Presents. And you can see my product line for Savage Worlds and D&D and Little Champions and hopefully a lot of Prowlers and Paragons in the next year. Or the, Wait, it's 2019, this year. Ta-da! Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, also, there's an email address if you want to actually ask me any questions or you can just friend me on Facebook and talk to me there. I'll try to respond. Right now I have lots of free time, but I'll try to respond when I can. Um, and occasionally, well, if you're in the Denver area, I'm going to try to make a lot of conventions uh, from going here on out. Uh, and uh, occasionally I get asked to be or be guests at other conventions, which I think is the only way I'm ever going to meet Mercer at the gaming table is by some crazy chance uh, we both end up at a convention and and run events and, and, and I can get in on one of his or something to that effect. But, uh, um, but yeah, that's how you can look me up. Also, to be honest, if you Google Surbrook, S-U-R-B-R-O-O-K, you'll probably find my content or my name at the top. Uh, there are other Surbrooks out there. It's a very rare name in the U.S., very. But uh, I do believe that my game, my website and gaming content and such pushes my name to the top of the list. You can probably find some of my material that way as well. That it does. And if you want to listen to the MyRPG podcast, you can find it on Podbean, iTunes, and wherever podcasts are found. If you have any questions or you want to send any requests our way, it is MyRPGpodcast at gmail.com. My personal Twitter is at Classy underscore Don. That's D-O-N. Thank you for listening, and I will see you at the table.